for the week of September 4th, 2022. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 592, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in uh, on Broadway, I should say, in New York City, on Broadway, I'm Michael Giltz. Why are you on Broadway in everything you just said? Yeah, well, this is kind of, I do want to go to New York. I'm not actually at Broadway, but I wish I were because of this crazy news. Uh, the breaking news is that Adele is doing a Broadway show. Okay, not so crazy. I don't know. You know, maybe it's just her talking about her life and singing songs, whatever, Adele on Broadway. No, but it's Adele and Eminem are doing a Broadway show together. Isn't that? Do they know? Do they know what? Have they listened to each other's music in the past? <laughs> I, I don't mean, know. Be... I don't know. I guess she'll sing his songs and he'll sing hers. He'll sing hello. She'll sing lose yourself. It'll be very exciting. Why are they doing that? Because they are both almost egots. They have both won Emmys, Grammys, and Oscars, but neither of them have won Tonys. There were a raft of people over the over the weekend while they had the creative enemies. That's the that's the technical the, stuff. The creative enemies. The creative enemies. I'm a, I'm a cre- the creative Emmys. And um, all these people are like, this person is almost an EGOT. That person is almost an EGOT. They were coming out of the woodwork because a lot of people today are smarter about getting a producing credit or doing other things with their fame and power. They're, people are a lot more active about creating opportunities for themselves and others and doing things. And so a lot more people are expanding out to television and producing and all that sort of stuff. So Adele is an Emmy winner and Eminem is an Emmy winner over the weekend. That means he won because of the Super Bowl halftime show. She won because of her primetime special. So as she joked, she now she now has an ego. I officially have an ego, an Emmy, a Grammy and an Oscar. <laughs> she <laughs> you just knew I'd be the one to do that. And so I thought now they have to do a Tony. That's the hardest one to get, though. Some people have done it by producing shows on Broadway, which ain't easy. But that gives you a shot without having to actually do a Broadway show. So I thought maybe those two would get together and, you know, put on a show. I think it would work. You want to know the good news is, is uh, I'm I'm almost an, an EGOT. You are. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. All I have to do is win an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. <laughs> and then you're and right I'm there. totally in. <laughs> yeah. And I'm right there. It's only four. It's only four awards. I mean, how hard could that be? You're all, you're, yeah, you're, you're getting there. You're moving closer every day. Yeah, exactly. And of course, one great way to start would be to take your one-man show to the Edinburgh Fringe Fest. That's right. That's right. I could start there, uh, especially now that they have an opening or had one, uh, because Jerry Sadowitz, uh, the comedian, the the kind of, uh, well, fringe comedian, he was canceled, literally, at the Edinburgh Fringe Fest. They canceled his set. Uh, and we asked last week, why did they cancel him? And it was apparently because he said the P word, to which we asked, wait, what is the P word? I mean, you at one point... I think you said, what is it, penny or popcorn? Like, what? what is the P word? And Michelle, and I hope I'm pronouncing this name right, Michelle Lydiard, I hope that's the correct uh, pronunciation, uh, contacted us through Facebook. Our page can be found, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our page and contact us, and said, this is, this is from uh, Michelle, I think the derogatory comment was about Rishi Sunak and his ancestry, though his family is from India, it's probably the shortened term of Pakistan. <laughs> right. So or Pakistanian. Yeah. Pakistan, right. Pakistani. Pakistani, yeah. right. So for years, I did not know that the shortened term of Pakistani was offensive. And if I had met someone from Pakistan, I probably would have said, oh, you're a, I mean, I literally had no idea. I heard it. Like in, a term of endearment. Yeah, I, right? I thought like, it was oh, just yeah. Short, like, yeah, you know, I had no idea. So I uh, thank God I have learned that and won't make that mistake. But that's hilarious because not only was he insulting him with a derogatory term that's extremely offensive, uh, but it's not accurate. He was born in Southampton, England, to African Hindu parents of Indian descent. So he's born in the UK. His parents are not Pakistani. Uh, his father was born and raised in Kenya. And his mom was born in Tanganyika, which later became part of Tanzania. So his parents, not, not Pakistani at all. And he, of course, is British, as anybody is who becomes British or is born here or be- gets citizenship, however it may be. So insulting and wrong. But I really appreciate Michelle letting us know why that is and how that is. And uh, you know, glad to know people are listening. What are they going to hear about this week on the show? Well, before I tell them that, I-, I would like to point out that I will now be referring to Rishi as a Southie. 
since he comes from Southampton. Okay, good. Yes, let's. I, I don't know whether you call people from Southampton Southeast, but I kind of like you it. Just wanna, you want to be offensive. You want to want to you know toe that line. You want to be right on the edge. Yeah. Great. And while I'm being on the edge, I'm going to tell you that this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are getting into shape. I have been doing push-ups. I have to lose when 15 I, pounds. You have to lose 15 pounds? Where are you going to put it? <laughs> I mean, give me a break. Anyway, we're, we're going to be uh, meaner and leaner here on the show from here on out. Uh, some people get in shape for the summer, you know, but everyone takes August off and gets a little flabby. I mean, I gained a half a pound here and there, or as they say in, 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 uh, all my Southie friends say, uh, a stone or half a stone, or I, I, I don't know. How do they wait? There's a lot of stones going on in, in, in the UK when they're weighing things. Uh, so, and in any case, we're going to get into shape for fall. So hold us to it. I don't know why I, I just, talked about that we're gonna have shorter shows but we're gonna take a really long time to tell you that oh okay hey so then my joke worked then (laughs) actually by accident but still it worked anyway three big fantasy shows have debuted on streaming but how are they doing in the ratings we've got the latest on the sandman versus house of dragons versus the lord of the rings the rings of power or as i like to call it Trop. In any case, uh, you know, Michael just really wants to talk about the Lord of the Rings and he wants to do it in Elvish and I'm going to kind of hold him to it. So, you know, you have that to look forward to. On Inside Baseball, we can thank the Los Angeles Times for giving some info on why the new Warner Brothers Discovery conglomerate is pulling shows from its library. The answer, and this is shocking to me, apparently it's money. Money is involved. <laughs> So go figure. Uh, plus, the purge at CNN continues. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. And remember, it was a holiday week here in the U.S., so really, we can probably take the S off of that that word headlines. Uh, but first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Gills to fill us in on last week's box office and to tell us whether National Cinema Day in the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Ireland, and several other territories actually worked it certainly did i was shocked last week friends of my mom who are women in their 80s had heard of national cinema day you know they only had a week to promote it and i thought how are they going to get the word out no one's going to know even the old ladies knew (laughs) so that was exciting it was a big success here in north america there were eight million admissions on saturday national cinema day september 3rd that's the most of any single day in 2022 the uk also had a big success i think about 1.6 million admissions and that's about triple the usual number for this day historically so that's a, that's a great success. Now, of course, you brought in a lot less money, but you sold a lot more popcorn. So the cinemas are like, yes, this is the way to well, go. And, and, and there are all movies that, frankly, were played out. They were all played. I mean, they, Jaws was one of the, I mean, it's 1977, that's, that movie. It's a great movie. Made I mean, a couple million dollars. But yeah, yeah Spider-Man came back it. towards the top of the charts. It was tops for that day. Top Gun Maverick eked out more money. So it was great for everybody. And, you know, if there had been new hip movies, of course, uh, cinemas would have been less likely to be able to charge $3 a movie. But guess what? People want to go to the movies. They want to sit in theaters. They want to pay for popcorn. Uh, They uh, want that big screen experience. And this is proof of that. So I think it was a success all around, don't you? I think it was absolutely a success. I mean, I tried to buy tickets. And of course, Mr. Last Minute Me uh, was on Friday morning. I was like, okay, so yeah, there's still tickets available to Nope. Uh, That was really my only Yeah, uh, I wanted to see Nope too, yeah. Uh, that was no. Well, my my beef with when they held this is that uh, at least this year there were there was a, a movie title that made it sound like there was nothing to see. Yeah, because you people made kept this asking joke. Me, you made this joke last week. No, no, no. I made it. I actually made it in the um, celluloid junkie newsletter. That's where I made it. Ah, I beg your pardon. See, you know, I read it. Yes. CJ Marquis, yes, uh, the Marquis. If you subscribe to it, and you should subscribe to it, uh, I did say that you know people kept asking me, uh, "Is there anything worth you know, seeing? What any- movie should I see?" And you'd say, without hesitation, "Nope." Oh wait, actually, no, no. Wait before you run away. No, there really is okay. a movie to see. It's called Nope. <laughs> so we're looking at movies uh, from around the world. It was a slow week around the world, and it's going to be slow until about November, right? <laughs> 
That's when we've got some really big movies yeah. coming out again. There are some smaller films, but uh, the box office is looking a little slow. There's just, if you don't put out movies, people have nothing to go see. Only about- This eight- is what happens when you put out all your movies on streaming services in 2021. Right. That's what happens. Right. Well, there also <laughs> were delays and all that, but hopefully we'll get right. back to a regular uh, release schedule come 2023. The reasons for it are myriad. Some movies have been pushed from the end of the year because they're still waiting for the box office to get full steam ahead. Only about eight movies made $10 million around the world or more this week. And the number one film is Minions, The Rise of Gru. That made $21 million. That's at now $890 million worldwide. Uh, Brad Pitt is still chugging along with his film Bullet Train. That too made $21 million. It's at just under $200 million. It needs to get to $300 million to be considered an out-of-the-box success. Uh, Japan's Dragon Ball Super, Superhero, that anime film, probably a low-budget flick that cost about $10 million to make, though that's just a guess. That made $16 million this week alone, and it's at about $80 million, so that is a big hit. DC League of Super Pets, another family-friendly animated film, $14 million this week. It's at $160 million worldwide. And then there's the number one movie in North America over this holiday weekend. No, it's not Spider-Man. It could have been, but it's Top Gun Maverick. It made another $13 million worldwide. It's made $1,441,000,000. It was the number one film on Memorial Day weekend and the number one film on Labor Day weekend. I'm sure that's happened before, but I didn't go back to do the math and find out what other movie has accomplished that. Maybe Titanic, uh, E.T., I don't know. But that's pretty amazing. The number one movie at the beginning of the summer, the number one movie at the end of the summer. Titanic came out uh, over Christmas. So I that know, but really it ran hard. and ran and ran. Remember, it made yeah. like 20 weeks. It was making $20 million a, a week, week after week after week. I don't know. I was just trying to think of what movie had really long legs that might have accomplished that. Can you think of another movie? No, Flashdance had legs. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, no, I don't know. Maybe it's the first movie in history to be the number one film on Memorial Day and Labor Day weekends. It's That's you know, that's very hard to do. So it'll be a fun thing to check out. But that movie made $13 million this week. Nope made $11 million this week. It's $160 million worldwide. And Spider-Man No Way Home came back out with some extra footage, padding out an already long movie, but a very popular movie too. It made $10 million worldwide. It's at $1,908,000,000. That's pretty great. You know, my, my, my daughter saw it, um, and she's a huge Superman fan. S- Superman? Spider-Man superhero. fan. She's okay. a huge yeah, superhero Marvel fan. She came back. She's like, you know... You know, there was a reason they cut that 11 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah they it, it didn't make it better, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, Idris Elba's film Beast, that made another $10 million. That's at $46 million worldwide. And then we get to some smaller movies. A horror flick, The Invitation, that made another 10, I'm sorry, $9 million. That's at $18 million and falling fast. Moon Man, that Chinese hit film about an astronaut who thinks life has been wiped out on Earth while he's stranded on the moon. That's at $430 million worldwide with another $8 million this week. And showing great legs is where the crawdads sing. Another $8 million this week. It's at $115 million worldwide. That is a very solid success story. And that's one of the stories of the box office this year. There have been fewer films, but when you look at them, film after film after film, a lot of movies have become profitable from box office alone. Bullet Train might still get there. That's not going to lose anybody any money, but that hasn't been a massive hit. But a lot of movies have hit their mark and been big success stories. So there's been a little more room to breathe, and that's given perhaps more movies a chance to make their full potential at the box office. When you're not releasing a movie day and date, you're getting a chance to make good money and make it all back from box office alone. That's really been one of the big success stories of this summer. A lot of the movies that were released have become profitable. That may be the case for 645. This is a Korean military drama. It's a, I'm sorry, a comedy. It opened in Korea last week, but somehow we missed that. It made about $3 million whenever it came out on Friday or Saturday or Sunday. This week it has made $5 million. So it's now at a total of $8 million. I imagine it probably costs a little bit more than that, and it won't be a success story when all is said and done. But if you know the budget for 645, or if you've seen it and can give us a review, tell us. Yes, you can write to us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 
567-7263. We're also on Twitter where our handle is at Showbiz Sandbox. And of course, as I mentioned, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. That is where you can like our page. Hmm. So we started on Broadway with a Eminem and Adele, our exclusive announcement, they are going to do a Broadway show together, singing each other's songs. Very exciting news. Uh, but over- You know, if it, ha- if it happens, <laughs> if- by the way, we want full credit and a producing credit. And if it wins a Tony, we also want to be part of the Tony. On the stage. I'll just be- yeah, I'll just be one closer to my ego. <laughs> much, much closer. That's right. Yeah. And also coming to Broadway right now is Leia Michelle. Um, yesterday or today, it's we're recording on a Tuesday. She will be making her debut in Funny Girl. The critics are not there yet. They'll be invited a few weeks from now. Just going to have a few weeks to settle into the role. They released a video teaser of her rehearsing the show and singing a bit of a song and getting ready. And, you know, I watched that trailer and I thought, you know what? Somehow all this Mishigas has turned Leia Michelle into an underdog with sympathy. You know, you're sort of like, well, she what finally... Michigas? Oh, the, 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 the Beanie Feldstein leaving the show and the bad will and, and you know, people, uh, uh, you know, all the Sturm und Drang around Funny Girl. We've covered it before on the show. You should listen to okay. it sometime. Anyway. No, no, no. I'm, I didn't know whether there was even more no, than than No, but discussed. she's now in the show. It's her dream show, her dream thing. They put it into Glee because it was her personal dream to be in a revival of Funny Girl. Now she's doing it. I thought, eh, you know, and I bet people are sort of rooting for her. Then- she gave an interview to the New York Times. Well, that didn't go so well. <laughs> I don't think it's hurt her that much, but you know, she explains away the claims of racism and being demeaning and bullying to her coworkers on Glee by saying, well, you know, I'm a perfectionist. I have an edge. <laughs> it's like, nah, that doesn't cut it. Maybe you shouldn't have given an interview. So she didn't do herself any favors there. I was hoping maybe she had turned over a new leaf, become a better person. That didn't come across in the interview, I'm afraid, but still, it'll be fun to see how she does in the role assuming you haven't worked with her and really don't like her. But she begins previews. Critics are not invited. Will they show up anyway? I mean, they will be invited a few weeks from now. Are they going to wait or are they just going to pay their money so they can start reviewing it right away? It's not that they're uh, going to review it right away. It's that they're going to probably try and sneak in and see. You don't have to sneak. You can just buy a ticket and they can review it right away. People have to pay a ticket to see the show. It's, you know, there's no grace period where you say, well, you know, it's like, no, no. You know, the show's open. People got to pay money to see Leah Michelle. It's doing really well at the box office. And their argument will be, well, people are paying to see her. It's not a preview preview because the show's been up and running for a while. So she's joined the show and we can review her day one. Oh, okay. All right. So it's not technique. When they say it's a preview, then 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 it's a preview. You can't really review it. Well, you can. There's no rule. It's just sort of a gentleman's agreement. But if you keep breaking preview rules for shows before they open, then people say, uh, well, we won't invite you to the next show or any other show. So suddenly you got to pay for every show you see. And and there's just an understanding. Look, but of course, that's all out the window. Now you have previews and out, out of town and they go to Chicago to review it. They go to Oklahoma to review it. They don't care where you right. are. Whenever your show opens, like some like it hot, a new musical version, they review it everywhere right away. So there's very little grace period. And of course, when a show opens on Broadway, people start posting the first day of previews. But it's nice to give a show a break and let them get it on its feet. Sometimes they abuse that, like Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, where they decided their previews were going to run a year because the show was never going to be ready. It was just a disaster. And the critics are like, no, you have, we've given you enough time. People are paying. We're going to just review the damn show. So I think they should give them a week or two. Um, if they want, expect people to wait a month or two, that's not, that's not kosher. But hopefully they will invite critics in a week or two, and they'll let her get a few performances under her belt before reviewing it. But they're not waiting on TV. That stuff is ready. Now, of course, The Sandman is on Netflix. House of Dragons is on HBO Max. And The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, is on Amazon. And all three of those shows have debuted in streaming over the last few weeks. The Sandman dropped all episodes at once. And then they dropped a bonus episode a few weeks later. So that whole season has been available to watch. House can, of, can I tell you what, why they did that? that that's that's the, Netflix's hey. modus operandi. Yeah, the Netflix realized, oh, when we drop them all at once, if you want to binge it and you've only subscribed for that show, we're screwed. So now they're doing it in chunks. No, they didn't. You know, they, like, no, I don't. I, I, you mean you're talking about Stranger Things? Stranger yes. Things, they broke up the final season in two parts. They get a second yeah. hit of attention. That's true. But I, I think they still see value in their own strategy of their unique thing of saying, oh, the whole show's available at once. 
that works for them. I don't think it would make sense for anybody else really to do it, depending on the show. You know, if it's a three-part doc, maybe you drop it all at once. But you got eight episodes or ten episodes of a series. I think you want people to come back every week. So I agree with you. But I think Netflix still sees value in dropping it all at once. That's what they did for all ten episodes of The Sandman. They just had a bonus episode later, and they didn't promote it, so that wouldn't have kept people from subscribing or unsubscribing so it was sort of a surprise thing but anyway all three are out there all three are being talked about all three are being reviewed and studied ad nauseum uh have you watched any of them sperling well you know when it comes to these particular shows uh i would have to say no no i haven't watched a single (laughs) uh, minute (laughs) did you watch did you watch game of thrones back in the day no, I did not. Oh, okay. I never, that's right. I, that's right. I've never gotten into Game of Thrones. And I know, and that's has nothing to do with its quality, whether it's good or not. It's probably great. But I also knew it was kind of like when somebody gave me an Xbox, they were like, oh, you don't look look thrilled. I'm like, no, no, I'm sorry. I just saw hours of my life like <laughs> flying well, out the window. Well, at least there's a limit, to, gonna... uh, a limit to Game of Thrones, whereas, you know, video yeah. games go on forever. Yeah, exactly. All right, and so and, and like, so you won't watch House of Dragons. Have you any interest in the Sandman? Uh, only because it's Neil Gaiman and I happen to like him. Well, that's his masterpiece or his crowning achievement. Yeah. So if you like him, it seems like that would be something you will watch. What about yeah, the Lord probably. of the Rings, The Rings of Power? Uh, you know, I guess I'll watch some of it just to see what I think of it. But I've heard that there's so much exposition that it's almost impossible to get through, that it's just all like... That's a lie. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, it's fine. The first episode is a little exposition, and the second one is fine. It takes off, and it's action, you know. It's perfectly fine. So all three are out. The Sandman, we finally have some figures on it. It opened well with about 1 billion minutes viewed. So that's a good, solid launch. It's a big property. They promoted it a lot. People sampling isn't the word for that. That's a lot of viewing. Uh, whether they will stay and keep binging it and the word of mouth will be good. We'll have to see in the weeks to come if those numbers hold up or build a little bit, even though all episodes are out, you know, the people who watch them might be saying, oh my God, you have to see this. Um, so I haven't done that yet, but that's out there. House of Dragons, of course, they will be dropping episode after episode. What have we heard about that? Uh, that uh, I think 25 million viewers are watching it uh if I'm not mistaken, is it 25 or 20 million viewers? Well, it keeps, uh, it keeps growing. They keep updating. Overnight was about 10 million viewers. Uh, so that was a great number. It was huge. And then the over the first, I think, 48 hours or something, they said that 20 million viewers had watched the first episode of House of Dragons. Now it's up to 25 million viewers and counting. Or I should say viewings because um, they obviously don't know how many people are watching the episode in the household. So then the second episode came out. And this was a question mark. The first episode opened huge. Everybody wanted to watch it. The second episode overnight had a slightly bigger audience than the first episode, 10.2 million views. So that meant certainly the word of mouth wasn't bad. People were happy with what they saw. They were turning out for that. So that's exciting. That means the show may have staying power. We'll have to see how it does long term. But clearly it's getting sampled. Now, Lord of the uh, Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones in the second to last season was doing like 25 million views. And the final season was averaging like 40 million views. The whole world showed up to watch that final season of Game of Thrones. So whether this one can match that, it's clearly getting sampled at a very high level. There's a lot of excitement and people were certainly there for the first two episodes. Who's not going to be there is Miguel Sapochnik. He's one of the two showrunners. He's the co-showrunner and he has left the show after the first season either because he wants a life or they wanted a change. We don't really know, but it seems to be all happy, happy, lovey-dovey. Oh, he's happy to move on and so proud of what he's done, and they're so sorry to see him go, that sort of thing. But who knows what's going on? But I imagine it's just he launched the show and he said, I don't want to spend the next 10 years of my life working on the next four or eight seasons. I just want to move on. So whatever happened there, he's moved on, and Alan Taylor has moved up. Uh, so Alan Taylor was a director and I think a producer or a writer in some level on the shows, and now he has moved up into a top position. However, Ryan Condal, the showrunner, stands alone on the Iron Throne. He is the man in charge. So it used to be two of them, Miguel and Ryan. Now it's Ryan on the Iron Throne. So that's what. So Alan Taylor, I actually went to school with him way back, and he made one of the best student films I've ever seen. That burning question. I don't know how you could see this movie, but it started very young. Uh, green John Leguizamo was uh, one of the stars of that film. Leguizamo or Leguizamo? John Leguizamo. I've always Leguizamo. said Leguizamo, but I, I don't know. Le- Le- yeah, it's called the burning but, question. But since- 
Yeah, and since then I've watched his career grow mostly in television. He does The Sopranos. He did some of the best episodes of Game of Thrones. Yeah, Game of Thrones, and uh, you know he's he's done a lot. Well, he's 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 one of the top people on House of Dragons. So to say he's doing well is, uh, you know, <laughs> it doesn't seem to be on YouTube. So the burning question does not seem to be available on YouTube for viewing. But we'll have to see if it's available somewhere else. So Sandman is doing very well out of the gate. We'll have to see how it holds up. Game of Thrones second episode held up just like the first. So people are excited about it. The reviews, of course, are polite, mixed, positive ish for both of them most sort of a wait and see attitude for house of dragons. Whereas, uh, game, uh, whereas the Sandman, I think it's slightly less enthusiastic, but still, uh, you know, the casting is great. It is impressive. It captures something of Neil Gaiman's thing. Then we have the Lord of the Rings, the rings of power. How many people showed up for that? Normally we wouldn't know, but Amazon said, well, we'll tell you 25 million viewers worldwide in the first 24 hours. Now, mind you, it's available in 240 countries. So as long as 100,000 people in each country watch it, that gets you to 25 million. And should that be viewers or viewing? Nobody, I looked back and I can't see any clarification from HBO Max uh, or Amazon, but they really don't know how many people are sitting in that house watching. You know, they know it's been played right. a certain number of times, but you can safely assume that more than one person for a lot of these is sitting there watching it. You know, husbands and wife, families, whatever. So it's probably a lot more viewers than, than we know of. And Amazon, right, but, but, mm-hmm. but that's the way they, you know, that's they're basically the reason they've, they've allowed for, for these ratings to be published is they have something good to say and they think it helps advertising. Them. Well, they, well they there's no advertising on, on the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. Right, but the There's reason no advertising yeah, we, on HBO Max. Right, but I, I, but is HBO the one publishing the the well, information? HBO doesn't have ads either. Uh, let's just stick with Amazon because Amazon actually came out and said they struck a deal with Nielsen specifically that was for football. because that's for football only. Oh, that's for football only. Yeah, no, it's not for all their stuff. No, it's just for Thursday oh, night football, okay. as we reported. You oh, really okay. should listen to Showbiz Sandbox. It's a really good show. Anyway, that was for football only. This is coming from Amazon only. We have nobody else to verify it. Normally, we don't cover that stuff because we're like, screw you. If you're not going to let a third-party person give us accurate, independent information, we don't trust you. We're doing it in this case because there's three such big shows, big rolls of the dice, and they're getting so much attention. But we don't know how they're constituting how many viewers. And we don't even know what constitutes a viewing in this case. What is Amazon counting as a view? Five seconds of the Rings of Power? Five minutes? A majority of the episode? Does that count as a viewing? That's what we would need to know in order to know, all right, what's actually happening here? But they think they have a good case to make. They think it's getting sampled all over the world. They're touting the numbers. And we're saying, all right, but we sure wish somebody else could tell us what's going on. We do know there's some not great news for The Gray Man. This is the Ryan Gosling thriller, which is played on Netflix. It played for about a week, and then the word of mouth spread. So the first week, it was... Uh, over 1 billion minutes. And then the second week, it held up really well, but there'd only been two or three days that first week. Then the third week, it dropped hard. It dropped from 1.3 billion minutes to 500 million minutes. So it dropped like 60, 70%. That means not a great, not a great word of mouth for the gray man. They've already announced a sequel. There's a whole bunch of books that they can draw upon, um, you know, it, it it's be- kind of like a reverse Stranger Things, where stra- when Stranger Things came out, like, yeah, it was okay, but then people started talking about and it and built went off the and built and built. That's right. So yeah. this one is not showing legs, not showing great word of mouth. Now, you could say uh, it would be great to get running totals of all the minutes watched on a show. We would love that, Nielsen, Comscore, do that, whoever else wants to compete. So I added it up. It looks about 3.1 billion minutes viewed total for The Gray Man. Well, hey, for a, a single movie, a two hour movie, that's a lot of views. That's good. Maybe everybody who wants to see it has already seen it. And so it's done its job. And if the next one gets 3 billion views and the next one gets 3 billion views, you'll know people liked what they saw. That's equivalent to about 25 million movie tickets, right? If you consider two hours into 3 billion, 25 million, all that sort of stuff. So that's, that's, that's a lot of box office. But it doesn't look great. Meanwhile, Ron Howard's 13 Lives, that's also out on streaming and you know what? I couldn't even remember the name of this movie. It's the Thai cave rescue drama. In this case, it's a fictional version of it. And it's called 13 Lives. Uh, you know, 
It's hard to have an impact when you're on streaming sometimes, when you're a movie. They come and they go so fast. And it's got to be sort of depressing to spend a year or two working on a film, see it on Netflix for a week and or wherever it's on, and then boom, it sort of disappears from the ether. Maybe it, it too will have legs. We'll have to see. It didn't have a great opening week, but... You know, that's what's going on. Now, when you have episodes, 10 episodes, you can build word of mouth. You can build attention. But when you're the gray man and you drop hard in the third week or when you're 13 lies from Ron Howard and it's hard to remember what your movie title is and what it's about and well, what streamer is it on, that's, that gets a little depressing. I think those, those filmmakers who have been excited to see the open checkbooks of HBO Max and Netflix and Amazon and Paramount Plus and all the others, they're going to feel a little less excited when they realize how quickly something disappears from the conversation. Well, that's, that's been one of the issues. Uh, it's, you know, if you have a menu with 500 thing, 500 dishes on it, people can't pick one of them They're, you know, they, they have, and whereas if you say, okay, here are your five choices, then it's easier for people to decide what to eat. Same thing here. You have all these services with an endless amount of content. And in the end, you're really doing disservice to all of your content. Well, that's sort of the HBO Max argument that you should just take things away so they have fewer choices to look at. I don't get that. I think it's just a question of when you have a movie that maybe there's a, 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 a value from theatrical release. If it's a movie that deserves to be seen in a theater, spending that money, getting that attention makes it more valuable for everyone, both as a movie and profitability-wise, and then bringing it to your streamer. Are you excited to have th 13 lives in your streamer catalog if people can't even remember the name of the film or what it's about? No. If it had gotten a theatrical release and gotten good reviews, assuming it might, or made money back, it would be more memorable to have in your library. First of all, it did seem to get good reviews, oh, number one. Okay. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, uh, I remember at CinemaCon they were showing this uh, as a theatrical release. So, and I think, what was it, an MGM film probably at the time? And then they, I, I, you know, this was, I guess, you know, they Amazon purchases MGM and uh, all of a sudden you have, uh, you know, an Amazon Prime movie. It's Viggo Mortensen and Colin Farrell and all that. It, it has an okay uh, rating. Uh, it, it's, they all seem to be sort of polite. You know, none, none of them are raves. It's like the Times of London said, it's a watchable account, you know. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, the, the, you know, so I'm uh, Book and Film Globe, which is a place on, it gives it sort of a negative. It's, it's, it's not great. So the, it, it lacks suspense. The Wall Street Journal kind of liked it, um, said it was pretty good. You know, it's uplifting. Um, so not a lot of raves, but, you know, not, not awful either. But it seems like sort of, was all right so that's how you can get to an 87 percent on rotten tomatoes from your critics if everybody says oh it's okay you can get a hundred percent if everybody says it's you know it's the best movie of all time you can also get a hundred percent so you got to really look at the actual reviews to see what they say so it's in middling meh reviews but polite and you know if i was ron howard maybe he's happy that it's gone to gone to streaming and not going to be in theaters because it's better than seeing it flop at the box office and not get great reviews Maybe this is the way to go. Maybe he's like, ah, it's no big deal. I'm, I'm fine with that. Wait a second. Mm -hmm. If Ron Howard doesn't think that's a big deal, then let me tell you, if I'm his agent, I would be saying it must be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop. Big Deal or Big Whoop is our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, <laughs> well, maybe 13 Lives could actually be, could have appeared in one of these uh, festivals. We've talked about this at Cannes, by the way, and now we'll talk about it at Venice, and pretty soon, I guess maybe Toronto. The trades are all in on reporting the audience reaction at public screenings. The new Kate Blanchett movie, Tar? Yeah, an ecstatic six-minute standing ovation, which, by the way, in festival speak means it was a huge failure because it's, uh, 10 minutes should be the baseline, okay? 10 minutes. If you don't have a 10-minute standing ovation... That's it. You're a, you're a, you're a bomb. Uh, Adrian Brody's white noise, a deadly dull reaction or a metered reaction, depending on, you know, who you read. Bardo, the new film from Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu, a warm but exhausted reaction or another muted reaction or just warm. Deadline said the applause lasted six minutes with the audience standing for four of them. <laughs> 
I guess what? They got tired. They sat down. Uh, Timothy Chalamet's Bones and All. Uh, well, the Hollywood Reporter says the crowd cheered for 10 minutes. You see, there's your 10-minute uh, baseline. And eight minutes in, began chanting the director's nickname, Guada, Guada, Guada. Uh, Variety insists it was an eight and a half minute, uh, you know. So thank you very much. Eight and a half minutes wait. is all they got. Wait. Uh, wait. Deadline says it was 10 minutes, but insisted. The crowd chanted, Luca, 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 not Guada, Guada, Guada. And also, uh, you know, all of this chanting and cheering and standing and sitting. Yeah, it delayed the start of the next screening. So is any of this news? Because I don't think so. Big deal or big whoop? <laughs> they are out of their minds. They have lost their cotton picking minds. I could not stop adding to this story. The AV Club now has a thing that they banner as the standing ovation watch. They insisted Bardo got four minutes, which is lame, but then said the director was reportedly moved to tears by the crowd's roaring reaction. Uh, the Whale got six minutes or seven minutes. Brendan Fraser broke down in tears. The Banshees of Inishirin. In this is the new film from Martin McDonough. It reteams him with Colin Farrell and others from In Bruges, a great movie if you haven't seen it. This movie got 13 minutes or 12 minutes or 15 minutes, depending on which trade you read. Can't they all start their stopwatch when the applause begins? How could they be three minutes difference in the standing ovation? This is completely not news. What do we know about public screenings they almost always give you a standing ovation right it's just yes it's, they're there they want to have fun they're friends and family they're all happy to see a movie and they got in they got their ticket they all cheer this is not news maybe once a festival the public reaction would be so extraordinarily bad or good you might mention it that's it this is not news i'm getting emails in my inbox every day from all three trades telling me about the length of a standing ovation for a movie from the public who cares this is not news it's really infuriating me but the next story is even worse you, you know here's the thing about standing ovations we're all trying to leave the theater and you know <laughs> well, what? we don't go we to stand public screenings up, we stand up to do it and uh you know what okay you're in the you're in the the auditorium i'll clap a little bit on my way out so there's my standing ovation for you except i gotta get out hey people get out of my way you're in my way and i yeah right it's ridiculous. i am a rube when i was like 12 or 14 or whatever wait et came out in what 82 so i am yeah. 16 i didn't know that when uh, Liz Smith, the gossip columnist, reported that E.T. got a rapturous standing ovation at Cannes as the closing night film. I didn't know that was no big deal and happens for every movie ever. <laughs> like, literally, almost always you get a standing ovation. I didn't know that. She probably knew but didn't care. And it turned out, of course, E.T. was, in fact, a truly great audience-pleasing film. But... It took me years and going to con to learn standing ovations are meaningless at the public screenings. Every single person writing every single story knows that completely, and they're still wasting our time and pretending this is news. It's ridiculous. It really infuriates me. Well, speaking of film festivals, as you know, you just kind of mentioned Venice is underway and it's imposing some strange new rules. First, all the media that attended is blocked from using more than 90 seconds from any red carpet walk. That seems really weird. And the media cameras, you know, the, the press when it comes to TV and cable all over the world, the press faces the same restrictions at press conferences of all things <laughs> that I do not understand at all. I can get the, you know, hey, you know, the red carpet, it's reserved for such and such network that paid a fortune to sponsor. Uh, but no, because they didn't tell anybody and they all flew there and then they were told you can't do anything with your footage. Yeah, well, festivals like Cannes and Venice, they often have, you know, one outlet paying for that exclusivity to cover all of the opening or closing ceremonies, the red carpets and the like. But other outlets, you know, they can film them just like in Cannes and they can film the red carpets and they can use the footage extensively and blocking cameras from using more than 90 seconds from from a half hour or longer press conferences. I, that very well may be unprecedented. I know the media is up in arms, especially since it flew reporters, as you mentioned, Michael, they flew them there to Venice to cover the event without any clue they would then be blocked from doing so. So is this a big deal or a big whoop? <laughs> this is a very big deal. They've lost their cotton picking minds again. They want the press is there to cover the press conference. What do you mean they can't film it and use the they're like out of their mind. This is just insane. Uh, it's like, no, this is outrageous. Everybody should object. Everybody should be 
you know, they're yelling at them every minute of the day till they change this policy and no other festival should do this. That's, this is the whole point. This is the only chance for the film to get attention. The whole job of the festival is to promote films. And if you don't let the press cover the press conference, this, yeah, my mind is boggled. And to get, to get everything off, off my chest, I'm also infuriated by the constant emails telling me about casting choices for a movie or TV project. You know, there's a project, they've cast the main people or whatever. Okay, maybe that's worth one, uh, you know, email news article, though most casting decisions for most projects are not that important. But yes, Kevin Costner is doing a new Western. I'm actually kind of interested and excited by that. Maybe it'll be great. It's this huge epic thing he's doing. I think I have received 87 emails about every single person being cast in this film from all the trades. It's like, no, the 47th person being cast in this film is not news. Stop it. You are not their press agent. You're supposed to be journalists and filter out the junk so we don't have to waste our time clicking delete on our inboxes. Well, there they are. Uh, yeah, D don't get me started on that. My inboxes, as you know, Michael, overflow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so everyone knows the songwriters are getting, well, you know, singer-songwriters, they're getting the short end of the stick when it comes to seeing CD dollars being converted into streaming pennies. That's why music publishers fought bitterly for years to get royalty rates raised from 11.4% to 15.1%. They spent millions of dollars in court. They fought to the bitter end. They won. And that's the backdated royalty rate from 2018 to 2022. And now, in the blink of an eye, they've made a deal for the next four Ooh, years. Good job. Good the job. Yeah, the royalty rate will rise from 15.1% to eventually 15.35%. That's it. What? They what? won a point something percent. Uh, and that's, that's the rate now through 2027. Uh, we won. Now surrender. This, this won't even cover inflation. So in essence, it's a royalty cut. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's utterly confusing. The goal that they announced was to try and get it to 20%. So they would have gone from 11% about a decade ago to 20% if they had achieved that for the next round of royalty rates. That was their goal. Apparently, and it hasn't been spelled out to where I can understand it, but other parts of the deal we don't know yet change how they handle bundled services and family plans and all this stuff to somehow make up the difference and make it more profitable for the songwriters. And they say, well, you know what? No one wanted to fight after the last time. Well, no one that is except the songwriters who have been screwed for decades and actually want money from the work they've done. And the problem is most publishers are owned by major labels so, you know, you have a conflict of interest there. The labels and the streamers both agree that songwriters should get more money, but they both insist that the other person should pay for it. You know, the, the streamers say labels should be giving them more money. The labels say the streamers should be giving them more money. And they both agree that neither of them wants to give them more money. So, well, here's the thing. The streamers have to pay the rights holders, mm -hmm. right? And that's the labels. Right. So they don't, the, the rights holders aren't necessarily... Yes, the publishers and the rights. Well, this is why we fight over the royalty rate. They would be getting right. more money so, if the royalty rate rose. Why they would agree after finally winning a significant increase to then throw in the towel and get essentially a cut because you're not even going to keep up with the rate of inflation for the next four years until 2027 is utterly confusing. Songwriters should be up in arms. This was a disaster. After all that fighting, unless you can show me that they're making up all that ground of another major price hike in the royalty rate, uh, I don't buy it that the songwriters are going to make out well from this deal. It sounds like after ages of fighting, they finally win a victory and then they get screwed again. Well, okay, let's move on to the queen of crime because my question is, who killed the queen of crime? Dun, dun, dun. Okay, actually, no one, but it, I'm sure both my question and Michael's musical interlude uh, got your attention, didn't it? Last week, we, we reported on a legal battle over the term queen of Christmas, which everybody knows I am the queen of Christmas, <laughs> let's face it. Uh, Mariah Carey wanted to trademark it and other contenders for the throne said, uh, no. This week, we've got a battle over the phrase, the queen of crime. The late Agatha Christie has often been dubbed just that. But in recent years, the Scottish crime writer Val McDermott, 
who considers herself part of the Tartan Noir School of Crime Writing. And by the way, I found out that there was a Tartan Noir School of Crime Writing about five and a half seconds ago when I said that. <laughs> uh, she, she, she said, hey, I, I'm, I'm the queen of crime. Uh, she's not nearly as prolific as Christie, of course, but is hugely acclaimed and commercially successful. And perhaps since Christie is dead, we'd say the queen is dead. Long live the queen. Maybe. I don't know. Well, not the estate of Christie. Actually, Agatha Christie's estate, uh, which trademarked the phrase and asked McDermott to, you know, cease and desist and all the legal stuff. You know, here's here's a piece of paper with all the legal stuff. Please stop. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, big whoop. I mean, Christie's estate should not be able to trademark the phrase the queen of crime. It's too generic a thing. You cannot claim something like that. It's just ridiculous, just like the queen of Christmas or any other king of pop. No, Michael Jackson does not have the rights to the phrase the king of pop. I'm sure they probably trademarked that, but that's absurd. It should not be upheld in court. This is absurd. Uh, so that's just, you know, it's ridiculous. Just like we said last week, this stuff is nonsense. No one should be able to do something that generic and broad. It just is ridiculous. However, I did learn some stuff about Val McDermott. This is pretty cool. She had a character who appeared in several books, a TV presenter with a lust for murder and underage girls. And she announced that she based it on her experience interviewing Jimmy Savile in 1977, the now dead and disgraced TV presenter who uh, lusted after teenage girls and was a horrific abuser for decades and got away with it. And she did this and made this character long before it was known, of course, about his real character. She just interviewed him and said, wow, this guy is a creep. <laughs> like she said, he was completely different in private than he was in public. And of course, he's being interviewed by a journalist, but apparently his awful nature came through and she remembered that and built this horrible character around him. So that's cool. Also, Hat tip to Val McDermott. She gets points for her activism in football, European soccer, of course. She's been a lifelong supporter of a Scottish team and even financially sponsored a stand in honor of her dad, who was a scout for the club back in the day. But she had to walk away from them when the club signed a player who was found guilty in civil court of raping a woman. She was like, yeah, no. I know he's a good player, but I think that's kind of bad. And she walked away from the club and stopped stopped cheering for them ever again and this happened we have to put this in perspective though this happened way back in um february <laughs> so they oh, signed wow. a player okay. in february who was found guilty in civil court of raping a woman and like yeah but he's got a great left foot uh, is this team by any chance called the Tartan Noirs? <laughs> no, it's because not. No, it's not. That would be awesome. <laughs> no. All right. Well, I guess that wraps up Big Deal or Big Whoop for this week and moves us along into Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business. More importantly, how they affect you. Here's what this, this week's story means for the business. It means HBO Max and Warner Brothers Discovery, they're trying to save money and they're trying to do it by canceling stuff or at least removing it from their service. And what does it mean for you? You get less stuff to watch. Yeah, exactly. So the LA Times did a story explaining this. It was by Stephen Battaglia. We couldn't get him because it was the holiday weekend. We'd love to have him on the show. But this article mentioned that HBO Max will save $100 million annually, annually by taking these shows out of its library. Now, what we don't know is a breakdown of where this savings has come from. I can't imagine it would be the cost of just hosting the shows on their servers and stuff. Well, uh, because they're still hosted. They're, it's not like they're like, oh, take it off. No, well, no, they're still going to be, sir, you know, they're still going to be Well, yeah, but they don't have to have people accessing them and streaming them and watching them, so I'm right. sure it's cheaper. They're not erasing them, of course, but they're, they're not going to be actively presenting them to the public. Is That's got to be some savings, but I can't imagine it's a lot. Apparently, perhaps there are payouts to the artists annually, whether or not anyone is watching a show. So if you have Vinyl, the HBO series overseen by, I think, Martin Scorsese, I guess it's just sitting there. And no matter how many people are watching, you got to pay out certain money every year to everybody. I'm not sure what well, those well, numbers with are. That with that show, it was the music licensing. And you'll note that there are certain Westerns, for instance, that can't be shown because they don't have the rights to the music. Well, music is so, always a big issue, but they have the rights to the music for what they're doing and because they've had it on their library. So those rights have not changed or grown. Uh, they're sitting there. They've already got the rights to them to have them on their streamer and have but them there. But for a specific period of time. And that's the problem. That time runs out mm. and then you have to relicense it. Well, that's but they would have a rate built in that they could do. That's an interesting question. Uh, so that's a that's a good idea. Um, because this article did not 
say that, but that's that's an interesting point. Royalty rates for music. I mean, because music is always a, a bugaboo. And dear God, the music people really need to wake up and say, you're not helping anyone by having shows just disappear. There's no help right. for anyone by having, you know, Northern Exposure not be able to have its shows or or uh, uh, American Dream, uh, a TV show I love that just can't be seen because the music rights are such a nightmare. Or old Carol Burnett episodes were gone for decades because it was too expensive because an orchestra played in one scene, you know. So right, exactly. they really need to wake up. But So that would be interesting if the ro music royalty rate, but there's lots of shows and music is not a big issue in some of them, I imagine. So yeah, we're, but even if it's just sitting there and nobody's watching it, how much money do they have to pay? <laughs> so, I don't know. But $100 million and... There are over hundreds of episodes because some of the shows had like 20 episodes or 100 episodes or 14 episodes. So the episodes add up pretty quickly. But how, in fact, they're saving $100 million, we don't really know. Now, here's the thing. They say, in general, look, HBO Max is for adults. It's not for families. And so this stuff just doesn't fit our profile. and We don't want to have it there, even though HBO famously had Fraggle Rock and all that stuff. And now they've had Sesame Street. They're like, no, we are not family friendly. Okay. However, they now announce, yeah, you know, we've done this, but we may revisit this when the services are combined into one big offering. So when they combine HBO Max and Discovery Plus and CNN into one big service, then they may say, yeah, maybe we want a family friendly section to which you say, so what's the point of removing it for like 14 months? <laughs> you know, really? Yeah, Does that it. make any sense? Not at all. No, but I, I also noticed that uh, Discovery Plus, their their streaming service, is getting a lot more marketing dollars pushed. Its well, way. I'm sure they need it, and of course, it's family friendly. There's a lot of family friendly stuff on Discovery Plus, and family friendly stuff will surely have a home when it's combined into one big service. There's no reason on God's green earth you wouldn't want to present Sesame Street and Fraggle Rock and all the new shows you have, and family friendly stuff like kids baking competition. If that's part of the Discovery Plus family, it may be, it may not be, um, but you know, come on. It just seems to, to make perfect sense. So why you'd want to remove them for 14 months, generate all this ill will, and then throw them back on again once you have the combined service up and running next year? That just seems very short-sighted. But are they well, short- Well, you know, they, they said they'd say, save $3 billion with this merger, and so now they only have $2.9 billion but Yeah, left. but you're not saving money so, if you're pissing off customers and, and content creators well, and making everybody angry at you and confusing families and parents and making them feel like there's nothing for you to watch at HBO Max for your kids. And then uh, six months later going, no, 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 actually there is. That's just bad well, long-term business plans. You're not saving money. You're just confusing subscribers and pissing off all the content creators. Well, maybe uh, then that's why the purge at CNN continues, <laughs> because last week we reported on the cancellation of ratings winner Reliable Sources and its host, Brian Stelter. And that was a ratings winner in its time slot, which was, you know, on the weekend. It was a week. It was a hit show yeah. on the weekends. That's right. When the yeah. lights keeping uh, now, the lights on on the weekends. This was uh, presented as a pivot away from opinion and towards more, quote unquote, objective, nonpartisan news reporting. But Michael, I know you were not happy because mainly, mainly because Reliable Sources was not a show spouting opinion. It was fact checking both CNN and other media outlets. It was considered journalism about journalism. Uh, well, heads continue to roll over at CNN. The latest reporter to get dumped is John Harward. He came from the hippie liberal bastion known as the wall street journal <laughs> he covered dc and the white house for the conservative outlet cnbc and in the last two years he moved to cnn so i don't get that this at all uh, he was you know you want to be a centrist john harwood was one of the ways you got there right so this is annoying too so on his last episode john harwood spoke bluntly about the danger of uh of the uh republican party leaning towards fascism speaking about the speech that joe biden gave and saying that essentially he is accurate that people who want to overthrow an election or rig the next election are not actually in support of democracy and he said what he's saying is true and it is a danger he would probably not have said that six months ago in that way but he knew uh he was fired and so it was announced hours later that he was gone. Now, he was a talking head on uh, on shows that look for opinion. He was also a journalist who could prevent objective journalistic stories. But these people, John Harwood and Brian Stelter, were not offering opinion. They were doing journalism. The opinion people on CNN are the former CNN guy, Chris Cuomo, 
uh, Anderson Cooper, Don Lemon, uh, some of whom I like, some of whom I don't. But those the primetime hours where they have people who just sit there and chat and tell what they think about the issues of the day, those are their opinion shows. They're also the highest rated shows. So when they say they want to go after opinion and have less opinion, that would mean removing those shows and putting in news shows like Brian Stelter's show, Reliable Sources, or like a Nightline, like a Ted Koppel show, having that in prime time. That's news as opposed to opinion shows. But those shows are actually popular and profitable. So what they seem to be doing is purging anyone who has critiqued the Trump administration and Donald Trump and the Republican Party uh, based on journalism reporting, rather than going after the opinion people, which is like Anderson Cooper, Tom Lemon. I like them somewhat. I don't watch them, but I don't want to watch an hour of opinion. I'd rather watch news. So if they would pivot from those hour-long opinion chat fests in primetime to news shows like Nightline and stuff like that, I would show up. And that will be fine. But what they're doing is getting rid of journalists that some people at CNN and Time Warner and stockholders don't like. So uh, it's not good. But they do have Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace was at CNN Plus. Now his show, he had a talk show, was one of the, the biggest property for CNN Plus. It was part of that thing to say, hey, look, we can have conservatives on this air too. Yes, you can. That's great. He has an interview show. It's now going to air on HBO Max. So they'll have three episodes of full long interviews on HBO Max. They'll drop there. Then they will edit them together into an hour long show, combining the best of the three interviews and air them on Sundays at 7 p.m. on CNN. So they'll be going head to head with 60 minutes. Good luck with that. But he'll be, you know, interviewing newsmakers of the day and putting them together in an hour long show on CNN. Fine. More power to them. That's fine. Having different voices on the air is great. Getting rid of good journalists is not. Yeah, they seem to be what with Brian Stelter. They said, yeah, we're not going to do coverage of the media. We're not doing that anymore. And then and then when asked, they said, we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to um, hire our own media team. It's like, wait, so you're not doing coverage of the media or you are doing coverage of the media. And you had a team you. already. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a little confused. And I think they're confused. I think that, you know, this is what happens w during these types of mergers which is why they should be vetted a little bit more. Unfortunately, money talks. Yes, right. And people are dying. Uh, they're losing their jobs and they're dying. Uh, a couple of obituaries this week. Uh, the Emmy-nominated documentary filmmaker Amy Steckler has died at the age of 67. She was also the ex-wife and early collaborator with Ken Burns. They first collaborated with two others on the Oscar-nominated documentary Brooklyn Bridge. That put them all on the map. They worked on other projects with Steckler, a writer on the Oscar-nominated documentary The Statue of Liberty, and a consultant on The Civil War. On her own, uh, she went off and did other things, but she came back to documentaries. She wrote and directed the Emmy-nominated film The Life and Times of Frida Kahlo. Uh, and in an interview with The New York Times, Ken Burns said of her, I don't think you'd have heard of me had she not been there. So that was a gracious comment by him. Uh, BBC broadcaster Bill Turnbull died at the age of 66. He hosted BBC Breakfast, that network's response to the Today Show and Good Morning America. He did it for 15 years, from 2001 to 2016. So if you're in the UK, you probably know Bill Turnbull. He also hosted game shows and radio shows and stuff like Think Tank and Songs of Praise. And if 66 sounds too young to die, it is. He died of prostate cancer. You can get checked. It's super easy. Go see your doctor. And finally, casting director Amanda McKay died at the age of 70. Her company, McKay Sandrich, was probably the first indie bi-coastal casting company. So they had offices in New York and they had offices in LA. They did it all. Among her big credits are The Fugitive, A League of Their Own. That's great casting. Holes, Bad Moms, The Hunt for Red October, The Sundance Winner, A Guide to Recognizing Your Saints, and TV shows like the TV movie The Normal Heart and the series Hell on Wheels, which was quite a good show and also a great job of casting. Actors she gave a boost to include Julianne Moore, Cela Ward, David Suchet, Sarita Chaudhry, Dooley Hill, and Shia LaBeouf. So she's the one we have to thank for Shia LaBeouf. No, just kidding. She was actually a very a well-known casting director and, and beloved cast. I mean, people... People liked her, and she got a lot of work. Yep. But uh, we get a lot of work, which is why we kind of have to wrap things up here so that we can get back to work uh, on our many, many jobs. Uh, so you know what? Here's the thing. If you want to make sure you hear our next episode, 
Please subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free, you can usually find us. And in some of those places, you can rate and review the show. So please do. It helps us out when you do that. Uh, That information is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, in fact, can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. And that is where you'll find all those ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. We're also on voicemail. You can reach us at 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter, at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle, and we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, whoismgmt.com. And Michael Gilt has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What have you got this week for us, Michael? Uh, This week I can be found at dcuniverse.com because, breaking news, Dan Lin will not be taking the job at DC, overseeing DC, so that job is still open. So I think, Sperling, you and I, we are ready to go. We can do I that. I hear Brian Stelter's available. Yeah, Brian, Brian Stelter is available. So is Justin Bieber, who has paused the rest of his tour while he tries to recover his health. Well, as well he should. Uh, you know, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on that particular website, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com, where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. <laughs> Sperling, Sperling, uh, uh, breaking news. The show has gone so well. Uh, you can see the crowd. They're getting to their feet now. Oh, the crowd is roaring, Sperling. The roar. It's a standing ovation for this episode of Showbiz Sandbox. A standing ovation. The crowd has been standing now for uh, two minutes, three minutes. Hopefully, we'll get to the 10-minute mark, four minutes. Oh, crowd. They're, they're, now they're cheering. They're cheering. Sperling, Sperling, Sperling. I think they're just leaving, they're, and oh, I'm in their way. Running I think, to yeah, get yeah. us out I of here. Probably, yeah, um, I should probably get, get out, you know, out yeah. of the way of the door. Eight minutes, and, nine minutes. We can get to <laughs> ten minutes, Sperling. Everybody just hold on. Oh, damn it. <laughs>